Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to Father Leader, a podcast assessing leadership and what makes someone a good leader. Are they born or are they made? Leadership qualities and more. This is a podcast. You want to subscribe if you want to be a better leader. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Follow the Leader. I am your host, Ellie Mandelbaum, and this podcast is about leadership and what makes one a good leader, if they are born or made. In Follow the Leader, I'm interviewing a variety of leaders to understand how they became the leader and what makes them effective. In this episode, we are speaking with Michael Freund, the founder and chairman of Shave uh, Israel. Michael moved to Israel in 1995, served as uh, deputy communications for Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu in his first run. That's a long time ago, at the age of 28. After leaving the Prime Minister's office uh, following the 1999 elections, uh, Michael worked for the Jerusalem branch of Rudder Finn, which was a global PR firm, and then went on to found Shavi uh, Israel in 2002. For those who do not know who, what Shavi Israel does, um, they reach out to lost and hidden Jews around the world, from Poland to Peru to Barcelona to Brazil. Shavi Israel aims to help descendants of Jews reconnect with the people and the state of Israel. They open the door to all who have decided that Judaism and a return to the Jewish people are essential to their fate and their identity. Um, this is something that I I, I love and I'm, is dear to my heart. Um, I think it's a tremendously noble cause and one of the reasons why I wanted to interview and speak with Michael. For his work at Shave Israel, uh, Michael received a number of prizes and awards, including the Jerusalem Prize and the Moskowitz Prize for Zionism. Michael, that's a lot. Welcome to the show. Um, I hope I covered everything. Um, if not, you know, feel free to fill in some of the blanks on your background. Uh, thanks, Ellie. It's great to be with you. I, uh, I think you covered a lot of the main points. Excellent. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, and with that, you know, I generally start um, background, right, going all the way back to childhood. You know, did you, were you a leader growing up, whether in camp, whether in school, did you find yourself in the thick of things? Did you find yourself, you know, in your social group as, okay, I'm going to do this, and people just, you know, your friends went along with you, or even more in the background, like just like, you know, I'll just do my own thing, I don't really care what people do, etc. Well, I was always very outspoken in terms of my views on Israel and the future of the Jewish people. Um, uh, even as a as a youngster, um, I wouldn't hesitate to uh, to speak out um, if I felt that the, uh, an injustice was being done or that uh, something uh, something needed to be done to uh, to help Israel and the Jewish people. And that's that's always been uh, something that's very important to me is that um, uh, speaking your truth and. Um, obviously, doing it in a in a respectful and polite manner, but firm as well, uh, and staying with your truth, uh, even if occasionally it goes against the tide, or even if it's not always the most popular thing. Um, uh, to uh, to grab an issue, to take a particular uh, direction, and to try and bring about change 
you're going to confront resistance and there are always going to be people who are going to uh, criticize or condemn. But um, if you're convinced of the, the justness of your cause, then um, that should be enough to fuel you as you move forward. Okay, so where did you get your your passion when you were young for Israel? Like, was it your family? Was it your community? Was it uh, your sleepaway camp? You know, again, I went to B'nai Kiva, and again, I, I mentioned this in previous ones. You know, B'nai Kiva is definitely my 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 rock in the sense where I learned a lot about not only Israel but Zionism aspect. Right? You have the, your Torah, then you have your Zionism. And they don't always work together. They should. And B'nai Kiva taught how Torah works together with Zionism to end up making it one cohesive unit. Um, but where did you pick up your passion? Well, I grew up in a, um, uh, a non-Orthodox family, actually, a, a traditional conservative Jewish family, um, very Zionistic. My, um, my late grandmother, Dr. Miriam Freund Rosenthal, was the, uh, the national chairman of Hadassah Women in, back in the 1950s. And she was very involved with Youth Aliyah at the time. And I remember as a child, uh, she used to tell me stories about how her travels to Morocco and Tunisia and elsewhere to facilitate uh, the Aliyah of Jewish youngsters from those North African countries um, back to Israel. Um, I became observant uh, at the age of 16. I became a Balchuva at the age of 16. And um, over the years, um, the more I learned and the more I grew and developed, the more my, uh, my passion grew as well. Um, I remember quite distinctly, um, one of the things that my late grandmother told me was that um, whenever you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror, the first thing you should do is ask yourself, what am I going to do today for... Israel and the Jewish people. Um, so that, that left a deep imprint uh, on me. And um, from the first time I visited Israel back in uh, 1977, um, I just knew that I wanted to live here. I knew that this was where I wanted uh, to build my life and build my future. Okay. And, and that's... I mean, I mean, you, you definitely got it earlier than I did. I think I was about 15 when I realized, you know, I wanted to move here. Granted, after I moved here, I didn't realize how much I didn't really know what it takes to move here. Um, so, you know, so in high school, you were definitely, you were outspoken. Did you feel that you were on the minority side? Did you feel that you were fighting an uphill battle? Um, did you, you know, did you know, did you really, in a sense... Did people look at you strangely for really, you know, arguing the, the in a sense, back then is the minority point of view? Well, um, I, I did go to, to Jewish day schools and Jewish high school, uh, Ramaz, and okay. um, while I was there at Ramaz, I helped to found the Ramaz Conservative Caucus, which was a politically conservative uh, group. Now, at the time, it was not yet as popular as it is today for young Jews to be uh, a Republican and conservative in their ideology. And so I, I certainly encountered a lot of resistance to that at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, again, I, I never allowed that to deter me. Um, you know, uh, 
we know at the end of uh, Megillat Esther, there's uh, it's either the last or the second to last pasuk, um, Mordechai Ratzui al Rovechav. Mordechai was uh, deemed favorable by most of his brethren. And so the Mepharshim ask, uh, what do you mean most of his brethren? They've just saved the entire Jewish people. Um, we see from that example that uh, even our, some of our greatest heroes, uh, there are always going to be people who criticize. The naysayers. Uh, the naysayers. And uh, you simply can't allow them to, um, to block your forward pro- progress. And so... Uh, at times it can be lonely, it can be um, uh, difficult, uh, because when you do take strong positions on issues, especially nowadays when things seem to be so... Dire. Yeah. <laughs> um, and with, the, with social media, of course, uh, and the immediacy of reaction, and sometimes the irresponsibility of reaction, um, it can be tough. But uh, again, um, you, uh, if you're committed to something, then you try to filter out the noise and focus on uh, what really matters. Got it. So you know, let's go into, jump into Chavez, John. I mean, if you want to, we could get into, you know, make, you're making Aliyah and working in the, in the government, etc. But, you know, what you were saying about your grandmother and her, her you know, attitude in, when, when she was at Adas and really helping the you know, the North African Jews making Aliyah. Because, I mean, that's really the Moroccans, Tunisians, they were, you know, already getting, after the war, at 48, they were being kicked out of all the countries. So that was the impetus, in a sense, for you to think about, okay, what could you do for, you know, Amisra, right? What could you do for the Jews, and what could you do for, the, for Israel as, as a whole? But why Shavit? Like, how do you come up with it? I mean, because they are, when, when we talk about lost, I mean, no one really even knew they existed, right? But, I mean, growing up, what did I think? We're Sephardim and we're Ashkenaz. Right. That's it, right? There's no, there's no one else. We're two people, we have no idea which, you know, we have Yehuda tribe, we have this, and they came from Spain, they came from Morocco, they came from, and we come from Russia, you know, Poland, Germany, but okay, that's the extent of our Jewishness, right? The extent of our... How did you come to it? Well, it actually started uh, when I was working in the Prime Minister's office. Um, back in this, I was the Deputy Communications Director, and um, uh, my boss was uh, David Barilan of Blessed Memory, mm-hmm. who um, was in charge of Hasbara. And uh, one day in the spring of 1997, a small orange envelope arrived addressed to the Prime Minister from a community in northeastern India known as the Bnei Menashe, uh, who claimed to be descendants of the one of the ten lost tribes of Israel, the tribe of Menashe. Mm. Uh, it was a very emotional letter, an emotional appeal to the Prime Minister, saying that their ancestors had been exiled more than 2,700 years ago, uh, and they dreamt of returning to Zion, and they wanted to come back. Now, I read this letter, and I have to admit, my initial reaction was, this is completely nuts. Uh, because like you were saying, I grew up in the New York area, uh, I grew up in a Jewish bubble, and um, the very concept of uh, a lost tribe of Israelites in the far reaches of northeastern India just struck me as being completely fanciful. 
But uh, there was something so emotive about that letter that I chose to respond. Now, it turned out that the B'nai Menashe had been writing to Israeli Prime Minister since at least Golda Meir in the early 70s, probably since Ben-Gurion and the founding of the state, uh, but they'd never gotten a reply. Hmm. Um, I met with some members of the community. There was a rabbi, Rabbi Eliel Abikhail, who passed away a few years ago, who uh, was the one who really made the first contact with them back in the 80s. Um, but I met some members of the community, and I saw that they were serious about wanting to live in Eretz Yisrael and to uh, observe Torah and mitzvot. And um, so I became involved in through the bureaucracy in helping for large numbers of them to start coming on Aliyah. And this is pre-Nefesh Benefesh. Yes. Granted, I don't think they really work with those type of communities. To exactly. Start, right? They're focused much more on the Western exactly. sphere. Um, and when I traveled to India and I learned more about their history and their traditions and their customs, um, as crazy as it sounds, I became convinced that they are, in fact, who they say they are. I became convinced of the historicity of their claim, that they are descendants of one of the lost tribes of Israel. And that something phenomenal was happening before our very eyes. You know, we've grown accustomed to miracles. Uh, we've grown accustomed to having a state of Israel, to getting the Kotel back into our hands, uh, to seeing the, uh, the Kibbutz Galio, the ingathering of the exiles that's taking place. Um, in a sense, for many of us, it's almost become routine. Um, which is unfortunate because there's nothing routine about it. And um, when I saw how the efforts this uh, lost tribe was making to return to our people, um, I realized that this is another stage in the redemptive process. And uh, after I left the Prime Minister's office, I began thinking more generally about the question of descendants of Jews. And I began reading up about historical phenomena, such as the Muranos, uh, you know, the descendants of the forcibly converted Spanish and mm -hmm. Portuguese Jews from the, for, uh, the 14th and the 15th centuries, uh, the Chinese Jews of Kaifeng in China, uh, and, and other such groups around the world. And then I simply got on the plane and started traveling. And I saw that many of these communities, many of these individuals are still out there they still have a sense of Jewish consciousness, a sense of connection with our people. And I also saw that no one was doing anything in a concerted fashion to reach out to them. And I thought then, and I believe still today, that that is a grave strategic mistake. Because the Jewish people are a small people, and Israel is a small country, and yet, there are literally millions of people around the world who have a historical and biological connection with us. And it behooves us to reach out to them and cultivate stronger ties with them. And I'm not just talking about conversion and aliyah. This is not about putting a yarmulke on everyone's head. It's much broader than that. Because I've seen time and again that uh, when someone discovers or rediscovers their Jewish roots, even if they remain a religious Catholic in Barcelona or uh, an atheist in Lima, mm -hmm. um, just the knowledge that they have this direct connection with the Jewish people affects their attitudes towards Israel, towards Jews. 
they're less likely to become anti-Semitic. Uh, they're more likely to visit Israel, to support Israel. And at the end of the day, of course, a certain percentage of them will choose to actually formally return to the Jewish people. So it strengthens us demographically and spiritually as well. And to me, it's a no-brainer. And it's something that um, we should be intensifying our efforts to reach out to lost Jewish communities, descendants of Jews, and others, and help those among them who want to reconnect uh, to do so. Got it. And, you know, so I, I do hear that. So pretty much a lack of outreach spurred your action, right? The lack of um, really anybody doing anything. And I, it's actually surprising what you're saying to me, that they've been writing to the prime ministers for decades and no response, which I just think is, I mean, thank God today that's not the case, but it's total irresponsibility. I mean, granted, you know, there's a lot of issues going on, between, you know, during that time, but, you know, just a simple response goes a long way. Right. I mean, but again, that's our skeptic nature to begin with, you know, you know, but so what were the challenges when you, you know, when you started out? I mean, because you take you're really tackling for a brand new issue. Right. You're the first really to jump in there. Um, So what were some of the issues that you that you faced? And, And did you find that each community had leaders that you work with? that were rallying, the, or the, the one-on-one, or you had to go into the community and everybody was just talking to you directly? Um, well, um, like you said, it was sort of a, a, a new frontier in many ways. Um, and um, many Jews perhaps have heard of the existence of some of these communities in a historical sense, such as the Muranos, but not many were and are aware of the fact that um, these are not just historical phenomena confined to uh, dusty old books on a bookshelf. These are living and breathing phenomena. These communities are out there with a strong historical uh, consciousness and sense of identity. Um, So when we speak of Muranos and we think of 1492 and the Inquisition, uh, that's part of the story. But even now, 500 years later, uh, throughout the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking world, you have a growing number of descendants of Moranos who are uh, coming out of the closet and who are looking to rejoin the Jewish people. They have traditions that were maintained in their families. In some cases, they only married among themselves down through the generations. Mm -hmm. They did everything they could under very difficult circumstances to cling to their identity. And I feel very strongly that, um, you know, their ancestors were kidnapped from us, from our people. They were taken against their will. The easiest thing, the easiest path they could have chosen was to simply throw up their hands and say, uh, the jig is up, the game is over. Mm. But they didn't do that. At great risk to themselves and their families, many of them continued to pass down from generation to generation. Um, a sense of Jewish identity and even covert Jewish practices, uh, even when they were being hunted down by the Inquisition. So nowadays, if their descendants are knocking on our collective door and asking to be allowed back in, how on earth can we slam the door in their faces? We have a responsibility to them uh, and to their ancestors 
to open the door and to uh, help those among them who want to return to do so. So, so how do you communicate that message, though? I mean, again, it's because you're tackling two fronts, right? You're tackling the the newness of the issue, and then you're tackling the fact that no one even knows what you're talking about, right? You have to educate the the. And again, your target market is the Zionists, the the the, the religious Jews, even evangelicals, probably who believe in, okay, return to Israel, gathering the lost tribes, but it's a really hard thing to communicate such a new message that, that most people, again, you're battling skepticism, right? You're battling the new frontier aspect to it. So how did you communicate that? And to start, really, and then even now how, how it's evolved, because I'm sure you've really honed your, especially with social media, you've honed your messaging a lot more than it was when you started. Absolutely. The first step was uh, was education and awareness raising, uh, was uh, letting people in the Jewish world know and letting decision makers know that these communities are out there, that it's this is a serious phenomenon, and that it is growing in size with each passing year, and it cannot and should not be ignored. Um, We've done that by, by focusing on particular communities and within those communities, focusing on personal stories, which are a very powerful tool for conveying um, uh, what these communities are all about. Um, it's one thing to talk abstractly about a community of Chinese Jews in Kaifeng that existed for over 1,200 years, but it's another thing to meet a Chinese Jew who has made the journey back to Jerusalem, and it's it's, it's almost like a leprechaun. I mean, for I mean, I, I'm being serious, but like I mean, you, you know, take a guy from Brooklyn or from Teaneck. Uh, to them, a Chinese Jew is literally when they don't when they think Chinese Jew, they're saying, okay, they skipped the war, World War Two, they ended up in China, and they were born in China. That's Chinese Jew, you know. But you know, because again, we're so. We're not exposed to any of this stuff, in, especially in school. Because again, we, you know, in, in day school, where I went to yeshiva. You don't learn about this. There's no. They're not teaching anything. Even the Gemara, they don't really talk a lot about where they went or where they are. You know, so it's a very, it's it's a very strange concept to wrap your head around and saying, you know, I mean, and so, you know, the messaging of again, so the personal stories really captured people's um, attention with. Right. And um, so education is an ongoing process. It's, uh, we're constantly trying to raise awareness about the existence of these communities and their needs and uh, also what uh, bringing them back contributes to our people, uh, the way it strengthens us uh, in so many different ways. And yes, there is a lot of skepticism. There are plenty of people who... Um, for example, who say, well, look, so many Jews are assimilating and intermarrying, why not focus your efforts there? Why focus on people who, in most cases, are no longer halachically Jewish uh, and who want to rejoin the tribe? Uh, which is a legitimate question to ask, and um, my answer to that is uh, very simple. Uh, they want to be Jews. Uh, we, we, we need to deal with both. Yeah. And um, if there are people who want to join us and who are sincere about it and serious about it, um, we need to embrace them. Uh, 
we need to, to help them make that journey home again, especially when they are descendants of Jews. So what, what is a story, one or two stories that really stood out for you over the years? I mean, that we said, you know what, wow, I, I, it's unbelievable what I was just able to do. Well, um, from the B'nai Menashe in northeastern India, we've brought uh, more than 4,000 of them on Aliyah uh, over the past two decades. They all undergo a formal conversion by Israel's chief rabbinate upon arrival, uh, which removes any doubts about their personal status. And there are some uh, phenomenal human stories in there. I remember uh, there's a young man in the community named Avi who, um, during the Second Lebanon War back in uh, 2006, um, uh, was poised to go into Lebanon with his unit. It was a Friday evening, and uh, the guys in the unit, even though he, uh, he was the only religious guy in the unit, uh, they all wanted to say Kiddush, and none of them knew how. And he was the only one who knew how, and he recited Kiddush for the whole unit before they went into Lebanon. And I remember when he told me the story, he said he still can't believe it. He, he grew up in uh, Manipur in northeastern India, made Aliyah, went to the army, and there he was, the only guy who knew how to say Kiddush uh, for, uh, on Friday night. Um, I've, uh, I've, another phenomenal story relates to one of the Chinese Jews, um, a young woman named uh, Jin Jin, who's um, growing up uh, because of communism. Uh, their family knew virtually nothing about Jewish practice, and uh, she said her father told her two things as a child about what it meant to be a Jew. Number one, she said, uh, she said he told her, um, the Jews are all smart because they don't eat pork. Um, I'm not suggesting that there is a, a, a connection <laughs> there, but that's what he told yeah. her. The second thing he told her was that uh, no matter how hard it might be to believe, one day... Uh, God was going to bring us back to the land of our ancestors, to the land of Israel. And we brought Jin Jin uh, to Israel. Uh, she spent a year uh, learning and preparing for the conversion. And I remember when we took her to the, uh, to the Beit Din in Jerusalem, to the rabbinical court, um, it was an incredible experience because the Dayanin, the rabbinical judges, asked her all kinds of questions and she aced the test. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, and when they told her at the, uh, the end of the process that uh, she had been accepted back into the Jewish people, uh, they asked her what name she wanted to go by, uh, a Hebrew name. So she chose the name Yecholiah, which is not a very common, common name. In fact, uh, one of the Dayanim asked her, uh, Where'd you get this name? Uh, we've never heard it before. Uh, so Jinjin Jin looked surprised, and she said, it's in the Tanakh. And the Dayan said, well, where in the Tanakh? <laughs> so Jinjin Jin took out her Chinese-language Bible, flipped the pages, and sure enough, in Divrei Hayamim Bet, in the second book of Chronicles, there is a short pasuk which mentions that the name of the mother of one of the kings of Judah was Yecholiah. So 
I sat there looking at this young lady who had come all the way from Kaifeng, China, to Jerusalem, and here she was teaching us all Bless. a pasuk in Tanakh. But then the really moving part was one of the rabbis said, okay, it's in Tanakh, but why do you want this name? It's not a common name in Israeli society. And that's when Jinjin said that as a child, her father had told her that God would bring her, us back to the land and she should always remember that God can do anything. And the Hebrew name Yecholiah means God can. And she wanted to carry that name with her for the rest of her life as a living testimony to the fact that God can truly do anything. Oh, that is definitely powerful. And uh, you know, so those are, I mean, those are really the stories that I think highlight the, the, the really the amazing stuff that you're doing here. I mean, you're bringing back a lot of people. And I think you were saying, so how many B'nai Menashe are, are, are in Israel now? So we brought 4,000 so far. We have permission, God willing, to bring another 700 this year, permission from the Israeli government. There are about 6,500 B'nai Menashe still in India who are waiting to come. Uh, the B'nai Menashe, let's say, unlike Jews from uh, Teaneck or Manchester, who come under the law of return, uh, the B'nai Menashe, uh, we need require special permission from the government. And uh, my organization, Shabbat Israel, uh, we have to cover the costs of bringing them to Israel, as well as some of the initial absorption costs. Once they complete the conversion, they get new, uh, they get citizenship and new immigrant status. Um, and uh, we're hopeful that over the next few years we'll be able to bring the remaining members of the community uh, back to Israel. So, so let me. So you know, the, you know, why, why so, why such a difference between them and let's say the Ethiopians community when they were making Aliyah, right? Why, why is the government so? I was against bringing them all back, right? Because there's two things to it, right? Earlier you said, like, and we all know, bringing in Jews into Israel is just, it's great for the, the, the economy, it's great for the society, they integrate well, and there's a ripple effect throughout. But why, why is there such a um, issue with bringing back a, a community, especially when you have four of them already here, Right and you know in society giving back going through the army and, and really giving everything to it, why such a hesitancy to bring the rest in? I ask myself that same question almost on a daily basis um, because um, the Bnei Menashe have shown themselves to be productive members of Israeli society in every respect. Um, they uh, the younger generation they all speak English. When they make Aliyah, they all have at least a high school education. Many have gone to colleges and universities in India. They all use smartphones over there. They follow the news here. Uh, the young men who make Aliyah all go and serve in the Israeli army. Many of them volunteer for combat units. Um, they all remain religiously observant after the conversion. They, have, uh, they raise big, beautiful Jewish families. Um, there's simply no reason or justification why uh, the process is as dragged out as it is. We do the best we can to lobby on their behalf, to try and speed up the Aliyah. Um, 
uh, obviously Israel is a country with a, a very busy agenda, <laughs> uh, uh, whether it's uh, diplomatic, security, or in otherwise. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think the B'nai Menashe are a blessing for Israel and the Jewish people, and they deserve to be here. And we're going to do everything we can to try and accelerate the process vis a vis the government. You know, so it's, it's funny, you know, you know, you describe a melting pot, right? Because again, America is a melting pot, right? We all, all our, you know, grandparents, everybody meshed together. All different races, etc. And Israel, you know, it is a melting pot as well. I mean, and and the, you know, there's definitely a strong aspect of different. Like again, I made Ali. I think I was in one of the, uh, I think the, one of the offices. I forgot which one. Early on, I'm 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 sitting next to a Venezuelan Jew. I mean, I, I never. I mean, again, you just not again. Growing up in New York, anywhere in America, you're sheltered. You're a sheltered. Jew primarily, you're not meeting people outside of your, you know, your Sephard or your Ashkenaz. You just, you don't really have that ability. You know, maybe if you go to YU, you might see one or two different types of Jews out there. But in Israel, it's definitely a melting pot in that sense. You have, again, your Russians, you know, you have your Ethiopians now, you have your Ashkenaz, you have your, your Sephards from all over the place. You know, but, you know, if you look at the Russian jury, right, and again, there was a massive wave in there, you know, they definitely made their imprint on Israeli society. But there was also the issue of who's a Jew, right? There's also an issue of the authenticity there. So why, why such a difference? Why, why the double standard in a sense? I mean, and I don't know if you have the answer. I'm just like, throwing, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the rationale behind it? Well, um, that in fact is one of the reasons why it's crucial that the B'nai Menashe undergo uh, the formal conversion upon arrival here because we don't want there to be a situation where anyone can question their Jewishness or their Jewish status. So in other words, even if someone doesn't accept or believe that they really are descendants of one of the ten lost tribes of Israel, the fact of the matter is that once they go through the conversion and they emerge from the mikvah mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the process, they are just as Jewish as you and I and no one can cast aspersions or doubt on that. So um, we try to work uh, within the system as it is. Uh, Obviously there are things about the system we like and there are plenty of things we don't. Uh, And there are some good people out there who are working to improve the system. Our goal is to help people who uh, get through the system as it exists now. Got it. All right, so we're going we're gonna to move on a little bit more now um, because we're oh, mostly done, another uh, about 10 minutes. Um, is there someone that made an uh, impact on you um, as someone that you look to and said, oh, that's the type of leader I want to be or that's some of the qualities that they have? Well, uh, my late grandmother, who I mentioned uh, at the beginning, was um, definitely a role model of mine and an inspiration to me and continues to be. Um, In terms of her firm Zionist commitment, in terms of her dedication to Israel and the Jewish people and the Jewish future, um, you know, those are very, those are words that are often uh, used and they sound highfalutin sometimes, but um, they're real words with real meaning behind them. 
And this is a, a country and a people with real challenges facing them. And um, if each of us were to pick uh, one area or one field that touches us in a way or speaks to us and that touches on the future of Israel and the Jewish people, and we made it our passion and we decided to bring about a positive change, uh, things would look a lot better than they do right now. So what were some of the qualities that your, that your grandmother, if you remember, had? I mean, again, I get the Zionist, the commitment, to, was she, did she have perseverance? Did she have the uh, ambition? Did, you know, but this goes to my bigger question, and I, I deal with it, but your grandmother definitely sounds like a fascinating person, and someone that, you know, impact you, re, again, really made an impact on you. I'm just curious to know. And then, what are some of the qualities that you think leaders should have? Perseverance is definitely one of them because um, uh, any project that you take on, especially if it's uh, relatively new in nature or if it goes against the grain, uh, you're going to encounter resistance. And uh, if you don't have that sense of persistence and determination, um, you may not be able to achieve your goal and to reach the... Uh, the finish line. Uh, so, so that's definitely um, that's definitely a critical component, a critical mm. ingredient. Um, and I think humility also, at the same time, uh, helps because um, you know we many of us in the Jewish world have become too accustomed to. Um, to not listening to others, uh, to not being open to others. It's ironic, right? We, uh, we open a, a Daf Gemara and we see that uh, Judaism is founded upon uh, dialogue, exchange of ideas, disagreements. I mean, we joke about it uh, a lot, how Jews disagree with one another. But um, if we put aside the cynicism, um, being open to uh, other approaches and other ideas actually uh, can help to strengthen um, your own sense of belief when you see it from another perspective. Uh, so over the years when I've encountered criticism uh, of what we do, um, I don't just wave it away or dismiss it. I think it through because... Uh, perhaps we can do something better uh, if we open our ears and open our minds and listen to other people. Got it. So what are one or two important decisions you made, um, you know, as a leader of Shari? You know, what are, like, you know, is there one or two things that you stand out in your mind and say, and I understand, again, I'm not talking about the achievements now, but I'm talking about a decision that you made that was difficult or not that, you know, that really was, you're going back and forth with something that shifted the, the wind in a sense. Well, back in 2007, um, after we had brought a group of B'nai Menashe and Aliyah, the Olmert government at the time decided to shut it down. And in fact, for five years, from 2007 to 2012, we were not able to bring any B'nai Menashe and Aliyah. And those were very difficult years. And there were plenty of times during that period where uh, 
we were overcome with frustration and five years is a long time just uh you know sit back yeah and uh especially when virtually every member of the community here in israel has family and friends and loved ones still in india waiting to come many of them have been separated for years and um a certain government came along and decided to simply slam the door on the aliyah uh, so for for quite a period of time then i often wondered uh What's the point? Why should we continue doing this? Um, but again, when you are confident in your convictions, um, it's not just a matter of banging your head against the wall. It's a matter of banging your head against that wall determined that the wall will break and that not you will break. Um, and... Uh, so thank God, since 2012, just over the past eight years, uh, we've brought over 2,000 B'nai Menashe here to Israel, and that number continues to grow. Got it. Um, okay, and so <clears throat> what is some of the most, most important to Shave? Is it finding people, getting them to Israel, um, integrating them? Um, I, I know they're all important. Right, they're all like again, you know. You got to get the first. The first leads to the second, leads to the third. You know, but is there, you know, it, it, you know, what are the, the biggest challenges? Let's phrase it like that. That you're facing today, with 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 with, with Chave, and and how are you trying to, you know, overcome that challenge? Each community is very different um, uh, in nature, so it's it's hard to generalize in that sense. Because, for example. Communities like the B'nai Menashe or the Chinese Jews, they want to make Aliyah, they want to come here. Many of the B'nai Anusim or Muranos are not necessarily interested in Aliyah or conversion. Uh, we also work in Poland with the hidden Jews of the Holocaust. Uh, these are young Poles who are suddenly discovering that their grandparents or their great-grandparents uh, were Jews and that they have Jewish roots. And many of them are looking to reconnect in one form or another uh, with Israel and the Jewish people. So it, it, it's hard to generalize in that sense. Mm. Um, but I think the biggest challenge we face is uh, one of the things that we touched on at the beginning, that um, the Jewish world in general is not yet aware enough of, the, of this phenomenon. It's not yet awakened to the tidal wave of return that has begun uh, among such communities. And we see it um, literally across the globe. It cuts across uh, socioeconomic boundaries. Uh, it really runs the gamut from the first world to the third world to every world in between. And, um, you know, if it was happening in one location only, we could perhaps identify historical or political or sociological reasons why that's the case. But when we see it happening among professors in northern Portugal uh, and peasants in northern Brazil, when we see it happening in India, China, and Turkey, and Poland, and elsewhere, we have to start asking ourselves, well, maybe there is something in the air. Maybe there is something of mystical or historical significance 
that's taking place. And it's not something we should be afraid of. Uh, you know, for 1900 years living in exile, we got the stuffing kicked out of us over and over, and we turned inward and we became skeptical of anyone who wanted to join us. Nowadays, that we are a sovereign nation uh, and we've proudly returned to the international stage, um, I think we can be more open to welcoming back into our midst those who are sincere about uh, embracing uh, a life of Torah and mitzvot and joining the Jewish people. Got it. And so, you know, what are some of the mistakes you see that leaders make more frequently than others? Constantly looking over one's shoulder, um, uh, fear of criticism, um, fear of being left out of the group, uh, of going out on a limb, of taking risks for truth. Um, those are natural human inhibitions which affect uh, leaders and non-leaders alike. But when a person is leading the charge on an issue, uh, the impact uh, of those things can have much broader consequences. Um, if there was more courage uh, among leaders, pick a field, any field, and uh, if there was more courage, uh, things would look a lot better than they do, uh, whether it's in the political system or among the religious leadership uh, or in our communal life. Um, we often allow uh, social needs to override uh, our collective interests. Got it. So, two more questions, and then we're, you know, appreciate your time and we're going to wrap up. So, um, what advice would you give to someone going into the leadership position, or right, taking a leadership role? You know, is there advice that you give someone? Pick your issue, find your place, uh, learn it up and down, left and right, and uh, decide on what your goals and your objectives are develop a strategy aimed at achieving those goals and objectives, and then um, devise the necessary tactics for putting forward that strategy. In other words, it, it, everything needs to be thought through. We can't be impulse activists alone. Um, impulse activists can have an impact, but a well thought out strategic plan with clear goals and objectives um, it's worth making the investment of time and energy in creating that uh, to guide your path forward. Right, and so to end it off, I mean, so what is your, you know, the next, you know, two to three year plan with, with the Chave? I mean, um, you know, what is, what is the, the steps that you've taken, you know, to, to put the plan in place for those the, the years to come? Well, um, we... Uh, we are expanding our efforts to, um, to bring the remainder of the Bnei Menashe from India to Israel. Uh, we are also expanding our educational efforts uh, throughout the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking worlds to reach uh, some of the growing numbers of uh, Bnei Anosim or Moranos 
who are out there mm. and who are clamoring for more information and knowledge about, uh, about their Jewish heritage. Um, and we are building partnerships with uh, Jewish communities and Jewish organizations because um, that's another very important thing. Uh, uh, it's natural for people to develop a sense of turf. Uh, this is my issue, this is mm. my turf. Um, but to really succeed in life, um, uh, you have to be open to, to partnering with others, to building bridges and creating those networks to really accomplish what it is that you set out to do. And at the end of the day, uh, just bear in mind that uh, we're all on this earth for a limited period of time. And uh, make the best use of that time and put that time to use for Israel and the Jewish people. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends about it as well. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Lastly, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Plugged In. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.